Welcome to Protect What's Yours, a podcast from Marcelino and Tyson, providing timely insight into legal issues for your personal and professional needs. Join us for in-depth discussions inside our practice areas of family law, business and employment, ERISA disability, civil litigation, bankruptcy, and more. At Marcelino and Tyson, we're focused on protecting the interests of our clients and providing the outcomes they deserve. It's time to take the fear and uncertainty out of your legal situation. Hi, everyone. My name is Megan Becker, and I'm the business development manager here at Marcelino and Tyson. And I wanted to welcome you to our podcast, Protect What's Yours. Today, we're going to go over the role of a parenting coordinator or a PC as it pertains to family law. Here with me are attorneys Jennifer Moore and Danielle Wall, who are both parenting coordinators here at our firm. So let's go ahead and just dive right in. Jen, can you explain exactly what a parenting coordinator is? Sure. So a parenting coordinator is somebody who acts as a referee between parents, generally parents who are in high-conflict custody cases. And that parenting coordinator helps parents make decisions, communicate better, generally learn to co-parent on an easier, less adversarial level. And one of the other things about parenting coordinators is that it's a strange mix or an uncommon mix of lawyers and mental health professionals. So the lawyers and mental health professionals can both become parenting coordinators. For lawyers to become a parenting coordinator, they have to be licensed to practice and they have to have five years of practice in a related role to family law. Both Jen and I have that. And after that, you then have to take a 24-hour, at least, course in being a parenting coordinator. And mental health professionals also have to take that course. And what the mental health professionals learn in that course is kind of the legal side, and the lawyers learn the mental health side. And then you blend that because it's about how do you balance the law and what the law says you need to do with the interpersonal relationship between a mother and a father who are trying to co-parent but don't get along and don't trust one another. Well said. So, Danielle, can you explain a little bit more who exactly needs a PC? So, specifically, parenting coordinators are used for cases where there's a custody matter. So, parents use parenting coordinators. And then they're used when there's been excessive litigation or there's a lot of anger and distrust or there's verbal abuse. So, one parent just can't help themselves when they speak to the other parent where there's been physical aggression or threats of physical aggression. So sometimes you've just got parents that it's always an explosion when they get together. That's a great time to call a parenting coordinator. Even if there's no explosion, maybe everybody's getting along with their words, but they can't agree on anything. A parenting coordinator is a great person to call at that point to step in and say, hey, help me figure out how to navigate this relationship. So I think the rule of thumb is whenever there's a case where the parents just keep coming to impasses, particularly if they keep calling lawyers and saying, hey, help me with this, instead of going through the courts and going through their lawyers, they could hire a parenting coordinator to shortcut that process. So I believe we've touched on this a little bit earlier, but Jen, can you describe exactly what a high conflict custody case is? Sure. So what Danielle just described is a high conflict custody case, and that is generally the type of case that a parent coordinator is appointed to help these parents. So high conflict, excessive litigation, like Danielle said, that's parents who cannot agree on a single thing. 
go to court over every little ounce of anything related to their custody case. Anger and distrust, exhibiting those signs either verbally or in written communication. Very often we see that in written communication, that distrust. Oftentimes during the marriage, there's a parent that felt like he or she took on the sole responsibility or the lion's share of the responsibility for a child. And so then now having to work with the other parent after separation, that parent might completely distrust the other one to be able to make a decision, do things for the child. We see that very often. Verbal abuse, things of name-calling, not even just name-calling, but degrading the other one, making the other one feel lesser, belittled, things of that nature, or both of them doing that to each other. We see that very often, and that's generally what kind of comes under that umbrella of high-conflict custody case. Of course, physical aggression or any threats of that, that would be automatically deemed a high-conflict custody case. And generally, difficulty communicating about or cooperating in the care of their children. So if, for example, you've got a client who really wants their child to go to school X and the opposing party says, no, I want child to go to school Y, and they literally cannot come up with a decision about where their child is going to go to school. If they don't have a PC, then what's their option? Go into court having a judge make that kind of decision for them, which is generally not advisable. Their judge has no idea really what's in their child's best interest for a school. They'll, you know, do their best to make that kind of decision based on what's presented to them. But generally the parents are the ones who are going to have the best ability to make that decision. It's just getting past the loggerhead stage to really seeing what is best for the child and how can we make that decision. That's something that a PC is absolutely very helpful for. So those are, I would say, that the main points of a high-conflict custody case. Of course, there are many others, and, and Danielle and I in our work see all kinds of different scenarios and situations and difficulties where a PC comes into play and is extremely helpful. One thing that I'll add to that is that a parenting coordinator isn't used necessarily. They're not appointed ad hoc. So when you go to see a judge, you might not have spoken to that judge for a year. The judge doesn't know anything about your children. Whereas if you've got a high conflict case, you appoint a PC and that PC gets involved in that case for little decisions like where's the pickup time going to be, but can also get involved for school decisions. So by that point, without the lawyers involved as much, the PC has an idea of who is this child and understands the parents a little bit better than a judge possibly could just because they're involved in the everyday. So you don't just call them when you've got a school situation. You do call them when you have a school situation, but they know more than that background. Right. Whereas a judge is only going to see, you know, maybe that's a 30-minute presentation to a judge from each side telling the judge, this is why this is best, this is why this is best. And the judge doesn't have a ton of context outside of that 30-minute presentation as to who these people are, who the child is, and what's best. So a high-conflict custody case, it sounds like it's a very stressful situation for everyone involved. So for our listeners, they may be thinking, how exactly can a PC help me? Danielle, can you describe that a little bit more? Sure. So Jen did an excellent job of running down the different types of 
conflicts that cause a PC to be appointed. And then if you've got that case, and in all likelihood, there's lots of areas that you could possibly disagree. Those areas are spelled out in a statute, and I'll go through those and give some examples. So one could be the transition time. So maybe you always pick up at 8 a.m. on Sundays and drop off at 8 a.m. on Sundays again, but now there's something that comes up and you need to change the transition time. And because there's a high conflict and you can't communicate well with the other parent, you could call the PC and say, hey, I'd like to change the pickup time to 10 p.m. because I've got something else to do. And the other parent can say, wait a second, that's too late. And the PC can help reach an agreement on that. And I'll interject there and say, you know, during COVID, that's happened a lot where not necessarily that situation, but the idea of, well, my, my kid isn't going to school. They're sitting at home virtually doing school. And if our order says we're supposed to pick up and drop off at school when school releases or school starts, what do people do? And in a high conflict custody case, most of the time parents aren't able to come to that decision amongst themselves in a reasonable manner. And that's where a PC could really help in there. Yeah, I think that during COVID, attorneys have been put in the spot of kind of acting as parenting coordinators uh, because it's been strange for everybody. With that goes with the sharing of vacation and holidays, particularly during COVID, which is a great time to to use an example. The shutdowns all happened and started at the beginning of the summer last year. And people said, well, they're supposed to spend summer with the other parent. And I don't feel safe with that. Other parent lives in other state that doesn't have the same things or other parent isn't as safety conscious or other parent is a doctor and I'm worried about sending them into that kind of frontline position. And so they might try to adjust those times and adjust the situation, but the parents can't agree. So in that case, again, you call on the parenting coordinator to resolve that. There's also, you know, something that might seem silly, but I've seen it because it's very real for parents is that at my house, my child goes to bed every night at 8 p.m. Every single night, 8 p.m., they're on a strict schedule. But then when they go to dad's house, all of a sudden dad says, ah, 8 p.m. is candy eating time. And they get to go to bed whenever they fall asleep, wherever they may be. And that can cause a lot of conflict between parents because the routines and parenting styles are different. So in that case, you can get a parenting coordinator involved to say, wait a second, can't we reach a resolution? Maybe bedtime at dad's isn't 8 p.m., but we, we push the candy eating time back to 5 p.m. to kind of make it a little bit more similar. Another example would be discipline. So what if you try to move the candy eating time from 8 p.m. to 5 p.m., but child keeps eating candy? One parent might believe in spanking, and the other parent might say, I would never spank my child. In fact, that's why we got divorced. And so you've still got that conflict, and so a parenting coordinator can come in and come up with some help with how you should discipline in a way that meets both parents' needs. And on the note of candy, one of the abilities or authorities of the parent coordinator, as spelled out in our statute, is diet. I have a case where the child has some sensory processing issues. Occupational therapist says diet should be X, and this is how you should eat. You should eat at the table. Mom is totally on board. Dad is not. Dad doesn't, isn't following those instructions. There's a lot of conflict there. The idea of diet really becomes an issue oftentimes. I had a case that was similar in that one parent believed in homeopathic medication and had an osteopath for a doctor and wanted their child who they believed had allergies to lots of things to eat a specific diet. And it 
overlap with healthcare management, which is the another thing that a PC can help with because parents sometimes, you know, if one parent believes in homeopathic medication and the other one does not believe in it, that's going to be a conflict that you need some help bridging. And every time you have to make a decision on whether or not the child's allergic to a tomato, you shouldn't have to go into court, but a parenting coordinator can help you with that. Mm-hmm. And something kind of similar to that is, well, along those lines is telephone contact. That's one that's in this in the statute and that comes up all the time. When should we FaceTime? For how long? The age of a child really comes into play. You know, one parent doesn't have a lot of time with another with the child and really wants to FaceTime every single day at 6 p.m., but child is two. So child is running around and, you know, maybe says, hey, and I love you on FaceTime for one minute and otherwise is completely not into it. And the parent with the two-year-old at the time is maybe not forcing the two-year-old to sit down on the couch and talk to the other parent. So parent without the child feels wronged because they want to see their child for more than one minute. They want to have some kind of substantive communication or interaction with their child. The other parent feels like, well, he or she is too. There's not going to be that substantive interaction right now on a FaceTime. And that creates a lot of conflict. And so a PC could really come in and say, here's some good rules that tell you what to do in the event of child not wanting to engage in FaceTime. Or here at every night at 6 p.m., we're going to FaceTime for three minutes. And that's all you get because that's all this child can handle. So it's little nuances like that, that a judge really isn't capable of most of the time putting in place because of just the limit on the judge's knowledge and time with these people. Whereas the PC, like you said, Danielle, can really like dig into who these people are, what this child you know, needs and, and what makes the most sense and come up with some really detailed rules and boundaries and choices for these people to help reduce the conflict and really do something applicable just to them. And I think one thing that's valuable is that that can be adjusted. So maybe when the child is two, three minutes at a time is great. When the child's six, you know what? Instead of three minutes at a time at 6 p.m., now we're going to do 20 minutes every other day because that's more suitable for the child. And so those things can be adjusted without trips to court. And another thing that Jen reminded me of or brought to my mind was that when you have children and you've got this conflict over, you know, it's only two minutes and the child's running around and I'm just staring at a ceiling fan and I don't know why this is happening. A lot of people aren't going to go to a judge over that, but what they're going to do is they're going to hold on to that resentment. They're going to make a note in the chart. They're going to send a letter to their lawyer and then something's going to happen that's bigger. And then all of a sudden you're in court because you've held up this resentment and you haven't had any sort of resolution to that. So now you're in court over where's the child going to school, which is a bigger deal. But because of that resentment, you aren't on a playing field where you can work that out. So with a parenting coordinator, you can have all those issues smoothed out as you go. So that way, hopefully it improves your ability to co-parent. And then reduces your time in a courtroom, which is generally the goal when you have a PC. Yeah. And I mean, everybody's goal is to be able to parent their children on their own without the interference of any third parties. And so I think a parenting coordinator is a great maybe set of training wheels, That's right. uh, so to speak. Yeah. And training wheels simply because divorce is really difficult, especially when there are children involved. 
And the idea of not seeing your child every day and having that quality time every day is extremely difficult. Danielle and I are both moms. We get it. Couple that with the emotion of he did this, she did this. The reason for the disillusion of the marriage just creates, it makes people really resistant to what would otherwise be rationality oftentimes, I mean, to be quite frank. Is a PC going to be in place forever for cases? Most likely not. You know, most of the time it's helping people kind of get past all of those feelings and emotions and learn how to really co-parent for the best interest of their children. And it's a tool that you hope will create habits and actions in people to allow them to move forward without the need for anybody. That's the goal. Okay. So how exactly does a PC go about making a decision? And is there some sort of review process when a decision is being made? For parenting coordinator to make a decision, they have to have some sort of communication from one of the parents saying, hey, there's an issue. So for example, if there is an issue about, let's say the issue is that child keeps coming over to mom's house wearing only flip-flops and mom keeps buying tennis shoes and child wears those back to dad's house and dad sends the child over flip-flops and that's not suitable for whatever reason. It causes a conflict. So mom sends an email to the parenting coordinator saying, hey, I've got this issue. I keep buying tennis shoes and I keep getting flip-flops in return. And, you know, the child can't do all the things I wanted to do while he's wearing only flip-flops. So in that case, the parenting coordinator says, okay, let me reach out to dad and says, dad, can, we've got a shoe situation. So let's talk about these shoes. Depending on the parenting coordinator, their styles might all be different. The parenting coordinator gathers information and then the parenting coordinator will make a decision. So let's say the parenting coordinator says, look, the deal is, is that every time there's an exchange, the child will carry either a pair of flip-flops in his hand or a pair of shoes in his hand and wear the other one on his feet. So that way at both houses, there's a pair of shoes and a pair of flip-flops, for example. And that the parenting coordinator will send that message to both parents and both parents are expected to follow it because the, the parenting coordinator has authority under the statute and under the order appointing them to make that decision. Now, having said that, of course, there's the ability to review. And so let's say one parent doesn't like the decision that the PC made, that person or his or her attorney can file a motion with the court to review that parent coordinator's decision. While that motion is pending, and sometimes we know that that can be pending for weeks or more, the parenting coordinator's decision is binding. So everybody has to abide by it until a court overrides it. And so when the court is deciding whether or not to override, for lack of a better word, a PC's decision, it's because that decision is not in the child's best interest or it exceeds the scope of the parent coordinator's authority. That's the reason why a PC's decision would be overcome. It's not just because I'm mom and I wanted this done and PC didn't agree with me and she went with dad. If, it, if it's just because I really wanted it and she didn't agree or he or she didn't agree, it's usually not going to fly. And that's one of the hard things about being a parenting coordinator is that you're making those hard decisions. Somebody's going to disagree with the decision on a regular basis because you can't always compromise. Sometimes it is A or B. It cannot be some A.5. And so the parenting coordinator faces a lot of those decisions, but one of the things to keep in mind is that the parenting coordinator, again, is like the referee. Like Jen said when we first started, 
And sometimes they'll make calls in your favor and sometimes they'll make calls that are not in your favor. And you've got to trust the process. When someone's going through a separation and a divorce, I know, you know, finances can play a big role in that. Can a PC help save money? Can you explain a little bit of that, Jen? Sure. So as a PC, my, I still work on an hourly rate, just like I do as a lawyer, but my hourly rate is much cheaper, to be frank, than my hourly rate as a lawyer. And the reason for that is the work is just different. And what I do as a lawyer, my, my strategy, my brain, I guess, is just utilized in a different way. And as a PC, the work is a little bit less. I'm trying to come up with the right phrase. Danielle, you have any thoughts? So when you're a parenting coordinator, you're not advocating for either side. Right. And so a lot of brain power is used in advocacy. That's right. So That's a parenting coordinator, yeah, the parenting coordinator doesn't have that. Right. That's a good way to put it. So that's a reason why a PC's hourly rate is generally lower than an attorney's hourly rate. And that's how clients can save money. You can save money using a PC because you're not running to your lawyer every time, you know, there's a disagreement. And generally, what, what does your lawyer do with that? Your lawyer sends a strongly worded letter to opposing party or opposing counsel and says, hey, you stop it. And then a lot of times that you get a very strongly worded letter back. And is there a resolution? Not always. And, and maybe the only resolution is going back to court. Is that always feasible? Is that always like the right move? Sometimes not. Or if it is the right move, it's extremely costly. Instead of that, if you have a PC, you go to the PC, the PC helps y'all work through it. Either you come to a compromise because the PC's helped you work through it, or the PC makes a decision. And that person's done that at a much lower rate and without the need to go to court very often. Danielle, can you explain exactly how someone goes about hiring a PC? Sure. So let's say that you're, you're listening to this podcast and you think, man, it would be great if instead of having to send letters to my lawyer every time other parent does something terrible, I'd really like to use one of these parenting coordinator people. Then what you do is you, you contact your lawyer and you say, look, I'm thinking about using a parenting coordinator and, you know, here's why. Your lawyer, of course, contacts the other side's lawyer and by consent at any time, you can enter an order appointing a parenting coordinator. So if, if everybody agrees, if you can agree on that, then you can do it by a consent order. If you can agree on it, because that's not unusual, then what happens is you can talk to your lawyer and your lawyer, lawyer files a motion with the court and says, I need a parenting coordinator. Now, a parenting coordinator, if not by consent, can only be appointed in a case where you've already got some sort of order for child custody. So you need to have at least a, a temporary order governing the custody of the children before you can get a parenting coordinator appointed. Once you have that, then you can ask the court to also appoint a parenting coordinator and the court will if granted and the court finds that it's necessary to have a parenting coordinator, the court will issue an order appointing a parenting coordinator. Jen, can you explain a little bit more about how a PC works with someone's lawyer? Sure. Oftentimes, once the PC has kind of gotten off the ground in the case, they're not working very closely with the person's lawyer or either person's lawyer. I would say at the very beginning, Generally, the PC is reaching out to the other person's lawyer saying, hey, I'm here, I'm working, send me what you think I need to review. Certainly, any filed pleadings in the case, that kind of thing. 
And then sometimes the PC is sending out summaries after each meeting with the clients. And sometimes those summaries go to the lawyers, sometimes not. If the lawyer says, I don't need to see your summary, y'all rock along and thank you for doing your job and I trust you, great. Other times, like in a case I have coming up, I have a custody trial and there's a PC. So I have been copied on everything and I need that to prepare for trial. So that's generally how a PC is working with a lawyer. You know, there may be issues that come up that the lawyer becomes aware of that he or she feels like the PC could help with. The lawyer can get in touch with the PC at that point, generally with copy to opposing counsel. Danielle, is it possible to have a PC without a lawyer? So it is possible to have a parenting coordinator without a lawyer. If you've got a a case that's already been opened and the, the court, maybe you're pro se, that means you don't have a lawyer. The court could appoint a parenting coordinator without a lawyer. It's also possible that you get a parenting coordinator, but your case closes and your lawyer has withdrawn and you're just working with the parenting coordinator. So in those ways, it, it is possible to do that. Now, if you are somebody who does not have an attorney and you're interested in appointing a parenting coordinator, one thing that parenting coordinators want to avoid is an appearance, even an appearance of being biased. So it might be more difficult for you as somebody who is unrepresented to contact a parenting coordinator and say, hey, I want you involved in my case. It's easiest to go through a lawyer. And if you don't have a lawyer at the very beginning, just be prepared for parenting coordinators to proceed cautiously. Jen, how long does someone typically use a PC? It really is dependent upon a case and the parent's needs. It could be a relatively short period of time. And when I say relatively short, I think under a year, a year or under, because there wasn't a ton of conflict to begin with. They feel like they've nailed down those, the kind of fine art of co-parenting well and communicating well with the other person. And they've really learned and applied those tools that the PC is giving them without the need for the PC. And it may be that at that point, the PC, you know, just checks in like every, every six months or something until they decide the PC is no longer needing to check in and the PC can withdraw from the case at that point. Other times, years and years. I have clients with kids who are two or younger and need a PC. And theoretically, it's unfortunate, but theoretically, there's another 16 plus years of time to litigate custody in some capacity or fight over it in some capacity. And so that might be a case where a PC is involved the entirety of the time or for a very significant portion of time. And having said that, if a PC does withdraw at any point in a case because things are going well and then things aren't going well, then you can always, via your lawyer or pro se without a lawyer, um, file a motion to reappoint a PC, get the PC back involved if things start to go sideways again. I think one thing that you can think about when you think about how long you have a PC is also how involved is the parenting coordinator. So some people might have a parenting coordinator that they call once a year, and that's very different from a parenting coordinator that they have weekly meetings on. And so it's possible to have a parenting coordinator and you only use them once a year when something flares up and then it dies down. So a parenting coordinator could literally sit there and do nothing for a couple of years until you call and you say, we can't decide whether it's going to be dance or basketball. Can you help us here? 
So there's a lot of power in the parent's hands with how much a parenting coordinator needs to be used. Right. Well, I think that's about all the time we have today. Thank you both, Jen and Danielle, for joining us. It's definitely been really informative. Thanks, Megan. I think this has been a really great topic. You know, we chose this topic because it's something that Danielle and I and others at our office are passionate about. I think we see in our work as family lawyers the true benefit that a parent coordinator can have. We want others to understand that. Like we said earlier, Danielle and I are both parent coordinators and in addition to our family law work, our our lawyer work, and always happy to jump in on cases in that capacity and help parents. It's something that she and I, I know, both share a passion for. Thanks, Jen. I definitely agree with everything that you said. I think that here at Marceline and Tyson, I know we all have a passion for helping our clients move through this process as inexpensively and efficiently as possible. And so we've recognized how helpful parenting coordinators can be at helping parents focus on what matters, which is their children, and less on litigating and being in and out of the courtroom. And so we're very passionate about the benefits that a parenting coordinator can offer. And I'm excited that we got to share that information with y'all today. Great. Thank you both very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Protect What's Yours. For more information on our firm and our practice areas, visit us at yourncattorney.com and we'll have one of our experienced team members reach out to you and help guide you through your upcoming legal process. That's your NC, like North Carolina, attorney.com. The insights and views presented in Protect What's Yours are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready to protect what's yours, contact Marcelino and Tyson today.